Welcome to The Art of Mathematics. I'm Carol Jacoby. We've talked about a lot of unsolved problems on this program, and today we're going to talk about the granddaddy of them all, and that's Fermat's last theorem. We'll save the puzzle until later so we can get right into this. This problem is no longer unsolved. It was solved in the 90s by a whole bunch of people using a whole bunch of mathematics from all branches. But to understand it, all you really need to know to understand the statement anyway, is all you really need to know is what is meant by a to the n when a and n are positive integers. And all that means is take n copies of a and multiply them together. So for example, 2 to the 3 is 2 times 2 times 2 is 8, or 3 to the 2, which we usually just call 3 squared, is 3 times 3 or 9. Okay, that's all you need to know. Interesting thing about squared numbers is you can often add two of them and come up with another one. For example, 3 squared plus 4 squared equals 5 squared. There's actually a whole bunch of these Pythagorean triples like 5, 12, and 13. In fact, the Greeks knew about them, and in fact, even the Babylonians before them knew about them, and they recorded them on clay tablets. Nobody knows why. So this goes way back. So the question that comes up is, can you do the same thing with powers of 3 or 4 or more? And this theorem, Fermat's last theorem, states, no, you cannot. There's no solution for a to the n plus b to the n equals c to the n, where a, b, c, and n are all positive integers, and n is at least 3. When I was teaching high school many, many years ago, before this was actually proved, I was annoyed with the class. They were not paying attention. And so I said, I'm going to give an automatic A to anybody in the class who can come up with four numbers that satisfy this equation. Well, that got their attention. And they may have messed around with it a little while and maybe learned a little bit about exponents, but it was a dirty trick. And that may be why I'm no longer teaching high school. So where did this problem come from? In 1637, Pierre de Fermat wrote in the margin of a book, quote, It is impossible to separate a cube into two cubes or a biquadrate into two biquadrates or generally any power except a square into two powers with the same exponent. I have discovered a truly marvelous proof of this, which, however, the margin is not large enough to contain. So this has become known as Fermat's last theorem. Now, now that sounds really dramatic, doesn't it? And I think this name is the reason it became so famous, because I can imagine a scene from a movie in which he's hunkered over his desk and he's writing, I have discovered a truly marvelous proof of this. And then he goes, he gasps and he holds his chest and he falls on the floor and leaves a trail of ink off the edge of the book and off writing on the edge of the table as he collapses on the floor and dies. And his colleagues come in and go, oh, Fermat is dead. What was this he wrote? Oh, it's a marvelous proof. The proof has died with him. Well, okay, that's very dramatic, but that's not at all how it happened. The fact is, he lived another 28 years after he wrote that and apparently never bothered with this proof again. He came up with a lot of theorems in his life, and he would write them down as theorems. And he collected these and proved a lot of them. But the interesting thing is, of all these theorems that he did prove, he's most famous for the one he didn't. Or did he? 
This is an interesting question. Did he really have a marvelous proof? This has intrigued people for centuries. Now, at this point, it really seems unlikely, since so many people worked on it over the centuries. And when it was finally proved in 1995, there was a whole lot of mathematical structure that had been developed in the meantime that was used. It just went all over the place. So maybe he thought he proved it. It's possible. Maybe it was just a joke. It's a good joke on the mathematicians for the coming centuries. Nothing gets mathematicians drooling like the thought that there's a marvelous proof of some intriguing statement, that there's some elegant little nugget, little, some little jewel box of a proof. Did he do it for fame? Well, maybe. It certainly worked. It's an intriguing question. Why does the formula work for two and nothing larger? And the fact that there may be an elegant little proof out there is even more enticing because you can look at that whole thing and really get insight. Insight and elegance in one theorem. Wouldn't that be wonderful? This is the kind of thing that really gets mathematicians working. It's really misleading to call this Fermat's last theorem. It's more precise to say Fermat's last conjecture because we didn't have a proof of it until 1995. A theorem is a mathematical statement that has a proof, not only that, but a proof that has been seen by other people and validated by them. So even if Fermat had a proof in his head, it wasn't validated. Nobody else had seen it and checked it. This is why we have peer-reviewed journals, that you're not going to have your results published until another mathematician or other mathematicians have actually looked at your work and agreed that it's all correct and that it works. This problem is like a lot of the other unsolved problems we talked about, and that's proving something doesn't exist. And that's always hard because, of course, there are infinitely many integers, so you can't check every possibility. Now, this problem is so famous that it attracts crackpots. So many people have heard about it, even outside the mathematical community, and it looks so easy. When I was an undergraduate, long before this was proved, I was given a supposed proof. It was several pages of notebook paper, handwritten, with a $10 bill attached to it. Hey, if you're a starving student, that gets your attention. Apparently, somebody had figured that he'd proved this and made several copies of his proof, attached a $10 bill to each one, and sent them to the professors at UCLA. Well, the professors weren't interested in this because they'd probably seen it a lot before. They get this all the time, I guess. And they handed it down to the junior professors and the teaching assistants, and nobody was interested, and finally they gave it to me. Hey, I was a starving student. I could eat for a week, maybe even a month, on $10. So I went through it, plowed through the non-standard notation. This was obviously not somebody with much mathematical training. Yeah, there was an error, of course. But it shows the lure of this famous problem that you have people coming out and trying to solve it. It makes me wonder what would happen if somebody who wasn't associated with the university, didn't have the credibility, really did come out with the proof, really did find Fermat's original marvelous proof 
and recreate it. Do we have that marvelous proof now? Now that we've finally proved this, have we recreated it? I don't think so. When I think of Fermat and think of his imagined proof, I figure that it's short. And even if he had a book with a little bigger margin, maybe he could have written it there. At least he thought he could. It was an elegant proof because he called it marvelous. But this isn't what we got. The final proof by Andrew Wiles is 129 pages long. And that's just the final step. There was all sorts of work that went in before that. Wandering around in various areas of mathematics that you wouldn't think would be related to this have nothing to do with integers. That's what's amazing to me is how far afield they had to go to get the result of this. Now, I've seen a t-shirt that has a proof of Fermat's last theorem on it. This is clearly a joke since the proof itself is so long and so complex. But even so, if you look through it, it talks about elliptic curves and eigenforms, and you go, what does this have to do with integers? What's really remarkable is the circuitous route that mathematicians had to go through to solve this. We go back to the late 1950s, and a couple of Japanese mathematicians came up with a conjecture called the Shimura-Taniyama conjecture. It goes by other variations on that name. That elliptic curves are related to modular forms. Now, these are seemingly unrelated mathematical concepts. Modular forms are these weird math structures. They involve complex numbers and non-Euclidean geometry. Elliptic curves, it turns out, have nothing to do with ellipses, but there's certain types of cubic polynomials they're in two variables. So they're equations that involve an x and a y. Very different. How can these things be connected? Now, it turns out that some of them have a very complex connection, and others they weren't so sure. So that was the conjecture, was that there is this connection between these two mathematical structures. Now, these things seem to have nothing at all to do with Fermat's last theorem. They don't have explicit relationship to integers, exponents, any of that. It wasn't until 1981, remember this was originally conjectured in the 50s, 1981, somebody threw it out as at a conference and people thought it was a joke that maybe there's a relationship between Fermat's last theorem and, and the uh, Shimura-Taniyama conjecture. But then they started working on it. And, so, and it was proved that, in fact, if the Shimura-Taniyama conjecture was true, then so was Fermat's last theorem. Andrew Wiles was the one who finally put the last piece in the puzzle which, of course, wasn't as easy as that sounds. He'd been interested in the problem since age 10, which shows you what type of problem it is, something that even a child can find intriguing. But once he got started on it, it took him seven years to do it and two tries. The first time he did it, he thought he had proved it and someone found a mistake in it. And then they went through and a year or so later, they fixed it. If you want to learn more about the theorem and all the math and all the mathematicians that were involved in solving it, it goes all over the place. Read Fermat's Last Theorem, Unlocking the Secret of an Ancient Mathematical Problem by Amir D. Axel. 
A-C-Z-E-L. So why is this such a big deal? Now that it's been proved, what does it change? Nothing. It's not as though people now have the confidence to go ahead and take exponents of integers and know that this is all going to work out and they're not going to get something unexpected. No, it changes absolutely nothing. Any numbers that anybody might possibly use in any kind of application have already been checked. It really changes nothing. So why is it a big deal? It's really all about the exploration. The solution was so vast, it spanned pretty much all of math. There's algebra, geometry, analysis, topology, Unsolved problems like this, these are the lifeblood of mathematics. That's what keeps us going. That's what keeps us excited. Well, that and coffee. It's just as though you think about astronomers trying to understand the cosmos. It's not going to change our lives. It's something that's out there that we wonder about. So it's not about the destination. It's about the mathematical journey that we've gone through to find it, which I'm sure Fermat never could have imagined. You ready for a puzzle? First, let me repeat the puzzle we had last time. Potatoes are 99% water. You have 100 pounds of potatoes. They dry until they're 98% water. What do they weigh then? Here's the answer. 50 pounds. If you have 100 pounds of potatoes, they're 99% water. You have 99 pounds of water and one pound of solid potato. So when they dry, you still have one pound of solid potato. And that has to be 2% because you've got 98% of the total weight. And so the weight must be 50 pounds. 2% of 50 pounds is one pound. Okay, you got that? You ready for a new puzzle? This puzzle is from Martin Gardner, who used to do the wonderful mathematical games column in Scientific American. And it actually is related to Fermat's last theorem, and apparently it actually is true. Time magazine on March 7, 1938, reported that one Samuel Isaac Krieger claimed to have found a counterexample to Fermat's last theorem. Krieger announced that it was 1,324 to the n plus 731 to the n equals 1961 to the n. But he refused to disclose what n was. Now a reporter on the New York Times easily proved Krieger wrong. How did he do that? Now to repeat, disprove the claim that 1324 raised to the n power plus 731 raised to the n power equals 1961 raised to the n power for some integer n greater than 2. We'll have the answer when we return in two weeks. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a puzzle or something else that you'd like to share on the air, leave a voice message at anchor.fm slash theartofmathematics with hyphens or email me at cjacoby at jacobyconsulting.com. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.